Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. This week we are celebrating Trans Day of Visibility, and I want to recognize the vulnerability inherent in such visibility. The title of my talk today is Sitting Pretty or Sitting Duck. That dichotomy, the exact opposition between being out and being yourself and being in physical danger, in danger often for your life, is what I want to think through today. Because the American culture wars have engulfed discussion of the rights of transgender people as citizens of states and of the nation as a whole. And we all know that when American political rhetoric reaches a certain point, people get hurt and rights get trampled upon. Here in the state of Minnesota, as you know, our state government is working to establish the state as a trans refuge. As progressives, we insist upon the value and freedom of individual conscience, the freedom and responsibility of personal choice, and the liberty of a socially responsible lifestyle. We progressives know that liberties and responsibilities are often a balancing act between the self, self-perception, individuality, and the good of the collective whole. As we consider these concepts today, I want to underline two ideas. One is from the mathematician and the theologian Blaise Pascal, who wrote, all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit alone in a room for any length of time. <laughs> or in gender neutral terms, all human problems stem from our inability to sit alone in a room for any length of time. And the other idea that I think is central to this discussion was well phrased by Audre Lorde. If you don't define yourself for yourself, then you will be crushed into the other's fantasies of who, of you, and eaten alive. Now, to explore these concepts, first let's think a few moments about what a self even is. Most definitions of self that have been used to define this uh, end up saying something about essential being. Essential being is the self. Uh, that's the essence of you, which I think is probably the most popular, the general understanding here. The challenge with that definition is that we are always putting some sort of description in front of that word self, aren't we? Terms like real self and uh, true self and social self and spiritual self and there's all kinds of selves. And the mere fact that we put all these descriptive qualifiers in front of the term self indicates the challenge. For example, in my thinking, I've come to the conclusion that the social self and let's say the religious or the spiritual self are often at cross purposes. Uh, 
But then, how can it be that oneself can be at cross purposes with another self? Are we different selves in various circumstances, or is the self so large uh, that it bears positioning all kinds of different places and ways? So think with me here. Blaise Pascal, when he claims that one of the problems with humanity is that we can't sit in a room alone for any length of time, he's talking about that spiritual or that religious self, perhaps more clearly termed the contemplative self, the self that meditates, prays, does yoga, journals, is mindful, does art, that sort of stuff, and that sort of self. The goal of most contemplative practices, as I understand them, is to weaken, ideally to destroy, the ego and get at what we often call in theology the absolute self, whatever that means. Now, this is a theological and philosophical question. Is there an absolute self that we can reach through contemplative practice in that quiet room by ourselves? Or is the absolute self only one more in a long list of the terms that we put in front of that term, self, and think that we're saying something meaningful when actually we aren't? I know that theology and philosophy is often like a bottomless pit or like a snake swallowing its own tail. But if what we are talking about is giving human beings the right and the responsibility of finding and defining what their true selves are, I think we need some signposts to know that we're getting there. And speaking of theology, I think the German theologian Ludwig Feuerbach got it right when he said, theology is anthropology. Theology is anthropology. The work of theology is the work of studying the human animal. So, what is the center of the problem with the human animal, I have to ask? That's what religions and philosophies are supposed to be working on. Allow me to make some crash generalizations about what religions and philosophies are trying to do. Taoists say maladjustment to the nature of the universe is our human problem. Hindus attribute the problem to our inability to accept our oneness with Brahma, with all that is. Buddhists say human suffering is a central issue for we humans, again, because we just cannot adapt to change. Muslims say that an insufficient acceptance of the will of Allah is the human problem. Ego, self, ego. Christians say it's sin, which is a separation from the will of the divine. But you see, they're all kind of going in that same direction, aren't they? You see how one problem centers the thinking in religions. But let's remember what Feuerbach said, theology is anthropology. And I think he's right. Yet accepting the concept as true opens some other challenges for us. We clearly don't know ourselves very well, do we? We don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what sentience is. Uh, we're still working on that. And, and therefore, uh, Feuerbach's 
theology as anthropology goes on to other things, uh, archaeology, psychology, there's all kinds of ologies here trying to figure out what the heck we people are. And we still haven't got there. We don't understand what the anthropos, as the Greeks called humanity, we don't know what the human is. Now, I hasten to add that Feuerbach's insight does not necessarily mean that there's not a God out there somewhere, but it does mean that when we human beings think about ultimate concerns, that actually we're thinking about human concerns. We want our loved ones safe. We want to be safe. We want our thoughts to be pleasant. We want to be respected for who and what we are. So, back to that contradiction. The removal of ego, or at least the diminution of ego, the I, 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 I in our thinkings and actions, is what classic religion and what we nowadays call spirituality often has been about. The Japanese philosopher Tanabe Hijima wrote that doing philosophy, which he thought was also doing meditation and theology, is about radical self-awareness. Radical self-awareness and reflection upon your ultimate concerns, the big ones. But that's in Pascal's lonely room, isn't it? That, at least he thought, we can't stand very long. Now, remember, Pascal didn't have a smartphone to check in his lonely room, or a laptop, or even streaming, for God's sake. Pascal meant being actually alone with yourself. He thought that most human problems arise because we cannot face our absolute selves. We're scared. Which leads me to ask, do the majority of people find their true selves so terrible, so frightening, so boring, or whatever, that they'll do anything to ignore themselves. I don't know. Um, even checking eBay rather than thinking about the true absolute self, right? Whatever. But we walk out of that room of contemplation or we check the smartphone. Whatever we do, we leave meditation and contemplation of our higher selves and our higher values, and we go out into the world, the social world, where we run up against other human beings. What then? Many feel, as Kurt Cobain phrased it, they laugh at me because I am different. I laugh at them because they are all the same. <laughs> Yes, Kurt. <laughs> to illustrate how the self changes between the quiet room and the rowdy world, let's reflect on an old Zen Buddhist story for a moment. Once there was a very holy man, and he lived at the top of a high mountain in a cave. You get the, the New Yorker cartoon, right? <laughs> he was a very holy man, and people from the village in the valley below would climb and climb and climb to get up there to talk to the holy man. And when they got there, he gave very wise advice, and he could even heal people with his touch. But the way up the mountain was so dangerous that several villagers were hurt on the journey, so a delegation from the village climbed up 
the mountain and begged the holy man to come down to the village to live so that he could help everyone there. It took some convincing, but eventually the holy man, in his compassion, relented and came down from the mountain. Now, when he got to the valley and the village, the people were waiting for him. They wanted to touch him so that they could be healed. They wanted to talk to him so they, they could hear his wise, wise words. And soon, bump, shove, the people crowded around, jostling to get to the holy man. The holy man became concerned for his safety. He began to push back against the heaving crowd. And soon, the holy man wasn't holy anymore. He couldn't heal with his touch, and he didn't have anything wise to say. He had lost his gift. Now, that's an old Zen Buddhist story, but you get the point, I think. The holy man was holy only when he lived in his secluded bubble with his contemplative self. When he stepped outside his meditation space, he was like everybody else. Which leads to my question, how do we take that absolute centered self, if we ever get there in that quiet room, out into the bustle and shove of the social world? Who or what do we become when people begin to laugh or to shove or to pass laws against the true self that we have found? That's the question. Sure, it's difficult, perhaps I would say nearly impossible to keep the calm, tranquil centeredness that we find in contemplation when we go out into the world. Yet, despite the hurly-burly of daily life, can we be ourselves out there? Now, self-expression, we know, is a central part of our liberal heritage. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, insist on yourself, never imitate. Henry David Thoreau wrote, I would rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to myself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. And of course, we know about Thoreau's different drummer. Who or what are we when we go outside our own silent space? Philosophers have thought a great deal about this over time. The Russian philosopher Alexander Kozhev, for example, wrote, desire is the presence of absence. Very interesting philosopher, Russian. He kept up, even though he moved to Paris, he kept up uh, uh, an open um, communication with Joseph Stalin. And, and people were, what, 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 why the heck are you talking to that guy, right? But he was trying to shape Stalin's ideas. Uh, Stalin apparently didn't catch on all that well. <laughs> but desire is the presence of absence, he said. We desire to go out into the social world and be seen by others because sitting alone is an absence. An absence of recognition and validation by other human beings because we are social animals. One of Kojev's students, the French psychologist Jacques Lacan expanded on his professor's idea writing, desire is the desire of the other's desire. Desire is the desire of the other, notice the capital O there, others, 
desire. That sounds very much like what most people think French philosophy sounds like, I know. <laughs> what Lacan is saying is that what we want from others when we leave our quiet meditation pillows and go out into the world is recognition. Recognition for who and what we see ourselves as being in the silence when we think of ourselves. In that wonderful book, Julian is a Mermaid, that's what Julian thirsts for. That's what Julian desires is recognition by a major force in Julian's life, Abuela, Grandma. With the validation of Abuela, Julian is a mermaid. Actually, Jacques Lacan is stating something that's kind of obvious, that we desire to be desired. And it's larger than wanting to be physically desired. Lacan capitalized the term other, meaning everyone except ourselves in society, the other. Desire is the desire of the other's desire. We wish to be seen in the social world as we feel we are in our true selves. As some of you know, one of my kids is transgender. She's in her late 30s now. Uh, she came out over 20 years ago. So I've had a lot of experiences uh, in, to see how my daughter uh, dwells in space over time. A constant in my daughter's life is people staring. The gender cues that we learn to depend on in American culture don't compute for people when they see my daughter. So, they stare. You see how this turns the tables on what a human being desires when interacting with the outside world. Instead of living in a world of others, my daughter is othered with a capital O. What those stares are saying is, I don't see you as the person you wish to be seen as. And that's bad enough. It's devastating to many transgender people. What's worse is what happens when your very being becomes a political football. When people say, we're gonna pass laws about which restroom you can use. We're gonna pass laws so you can't make your own decisions about your body and your own health. We're gonna pass laws so that it is illegal to be you. Those laws say, no, Julian, you're not a mermaid. You're confused. You're a child who needs adults to set you straight. Get out there and play with guns. <laughs> desire is the desire of the other's desire. That could be as simple as someone not looking at you funny. That could be as simple as using someone's preferred pronouns. Anything that would say, I see you, I respect you, Julian. You make a beautiful mermaid. That's the gift that we, in our life-giving religious tradition, can give. And I say we must give that. Audre Lorde knew the situation well and put it very simply. If you don't define yourself for yourself, then you will be crushed into the, into the other's fantasies of you and be eaten alive. She knew that firsthand. So a final thought. Blaise Pascal, I think, got it wrong, actually, 
Yes, it's true that we distractible human beings have a lot of trouble sitting alone in quiet contemplation. Yet a larger problem is our inability to mentally stay on the mountaintop despite being in the village. A larger problem is that we so seldom share our quiet, centered, and peaceful, absolute selves. One thing that I've pledged for myself as a old, white, heterosexual male is to be not that guy. I don't want to be that guy who others, others, and stares. Marcus Aurelius, who you know I love as a Stoic philosopher, a Roman emperor, so he had a little busy outside life. He was also a philosopher. He put it this way, and that's how I want to end, is to think about this today. He said, many seek retreats for themselves, places in the country, by the sea, in the mountains. I think of these two, but this is a common mistake. In truth, you can retreat into yourself anytime. There is nowhere quieter. Nowhere are you more free. Tranquility is nothing more than the good ordering of the mind. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.